You are listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect. Well, good evening, ladies. Good evening. I've been anticipating this night for a couple months. And I, like Josephine, didn't want to say yes at first. <laughs> I, was, I was nervous, honestly. And I was praying, like, Lord, uh, I don't think I can do this. And he said to me, if not now, when? And I said, okay, I hear you, Lord. So I just wanted to pray first before we began tonight, and it's out of Ephesians 3, 16 through 20. Now, I personally like to use the complete Jewish Bible, so a lot of my scripture is going to come out of the complete Jewish Bible version. If it's a different version, I will let you know. Okay, so tonight I pray that from the treasures of his glory, he will empower you, he will empower me with inner strength by his spirit, so the Messiah may live in our hearts through our trusting. Also, I pray that we will be rooted and founded in love so that we with all of God's people will be given strength to grasp what is the breadth, what is the length, what is the height, and what is the depth of the Messiah's love. To know this love, even though it's beyond all knowing, so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him by who his power working in us is able to do far beyond anything we can ask or imagine, to him be the glory. So I felt really tonight that he wants to remind you of who you are. Because some of you have forgotten, or maybe some of you don't know, who you are, but first, I want to remind you of who he is, and again, we're going to, the book of mysteries, like Mel read out today, I do love this book, and I recommend it highly, so if you weren't here when she read out of it, it's by Jonathan Kahn, and this is called The I Am of All I Ams, so it was on this second day, I realized there'd be no set time for the teacher's coming. He came in the afternoon. Do you know the name of God, asked the teacher. I don't know that I do. It's made up of four Hebrew letters, the Yud, the He, the Vav, and the He. It's Y-H-V-H. It's the most sacred of names, so sacred, some of refuse to say it, and yet you say it all the time. The sacred name of God, I replied, how could I when I never knew it? When you speak of yourself, you say the name. I don't understand. So when you feel happy, you say, I am happy. And when you're not, you say, I am sad. When you tell others who you are, you say, I am, followed by your name. Y-H-V-H means I am. It's the name of the eternal the name of God. His name is I am. Then we all say his name. Yes, and you have always said it. It is woven into the fabric of existence that when you speak of yourself, you must say his name. Why is that? 
It's because your existence come from his existence. He is the I am of all existence, the I am of all I ams. Your I am only exists because of his I am. And as you exist from him, so it is only from him that you can find the reason and purpose for your existence. Therefore, when you say your name, you must always speak his name. And you must always speak his name first. Because his existence is first. And your existence flows from his. That's the flow of existence. Therefore, you must put him first and let everything flow from that. Let everything begin with him and flow forth from him. That's the secret of life. To not only live for him, but to live your life from him. To live from his living. Move from his moving, act from his actions, to feel from his heart, to be from his being, and to become who you are from who he is, I am. So the mission that's included, it says, learn the secret of living each moment from his life, doing from his doing, loving from his love, and being from his being. So... Those of you who do know me know that I like the Hebrew roots of Christianity and find it extremely important that we know these things. And because I believe we do not get the full picture of the scriptures in the context it's intended unless we understand it from a Hebrew perspective. Jesus was a Jew living in first century Middle East. We read scripture from a 21st century Western mindset. Our cultures are different. They clash. So the way Jesus intends things to be understood can easily be misunderstood if we don't understand that. Example, the parable of the mustard seed. We read it as if your faith is the size of a mustard seed, then you can move mountains. But I don't believe that's what Jesus intended. It says that, okay, well, Jesus was a rabbi, right? So the rabbi's way of teaching was usually they were walking with their disciples and they were teaching. And they would use their surroundings that were around them to teach. So the disciples would have asked a question and they, Jesus would have picked up the mustard seed. Now the mustard seed is like a weed. It grows wild in Israel, and it will grow on the side of the road. So there was most likely just growing along the side of the road. Jesus would have picked this up and said, if your faith is like this mustard seed, it can move mountains. Now, what he meant was, if this, your faith is alive, if your faith is tenacious, if your faith will grow wherever you are planted, the mustard seed will grow up along the side of a mountain and literally shift the mountain out of the way with its growing because it's tenacious, it's alive. So that's a little different from the perspective of size because if we look at it from the perspective of size, I know for myself, I've come into self-condemnation thinking, my faith isn't even that big. It's not even as big as one of the smallest seeds you can find. And so you know, it it almost puts a hindrance on my faith thinking of it. But when I think of it as being alive and tenacious, then I get a different perspective of what he means by having faith like a mustard seed. So tonight, 
it's not a coincidence we've been talking about the bride this weekend. Now, none of us have correlated our messages. So when Diane is speaking or when Josephine is speaking and it, the bride comes up, I just know that's totally God's heart. So I want to look at the ancient Jewish wedding customs and the prophetic significance it holds to the bride of Christ. But first, I want to share a dream that I had July 8th of this year. So I dreamt I married my husband James, and my husband's name is James in real life, (coughs) at 1 p.m. In the dream I had said, I married my brother at but I will marry my real husband at 4.15. So I got on a plane and was on my way to the wedding. It was now 4.52. I told James, call the church and tell him we are late and need more time. So James calls and talks to somebody at the church. And as he's calling, I can see a picture of this church as it's happening. And people are sitting there looking at their watches, checking the time. And you could tell they're getting really impatient. So they told James, you know what, we'll delay it until 7 p.m. And I said, well, you know, it's almost 5 now. We need a little more time than that. So they say 7.30 and no later. Our plane lands at West Edmonton Mall at 5. I rush in to look for my dress, makeup, and other things that I need. I had James, our kids, my sister, and a few other ladies with me. They were supposed to help me prepare get and get ready, but they all went off in different directions when we got into the mall, distracted. So I went off on my own to try and find a dress. I went into one store, and this guy looks at me and says, you know, I'm not helping you. And I thought, wow, that was rude. But, you know, so I go on looking by myself. And another guy comes up, and he offers me a dress that it was just awful. It had brown fur on it and a tiger's head on it. And I was like, no, thank you. I'm not wearing that. And I left the store and then I see my husband, James, and I asked where our daughter, Nevaeh, is. Our daughter is 11. And he didn't know where she was. So I got upset because he lost her in this huge mall. So we went looking for her. But all the while, I'm looking for my daughter. I have this nagging pressing feeling like I need to be getting ready. I need to be getting ready and prepared for this wedding because they're not going to delay it any longer. And I'm already running out of time. So right now, I really believe this is a picture of the bride of Christ, of the state that she is currently in right now, distracted, busying herself with unnecessary things, even things that we would call good, or even things we would say these are necessary. We busy ourselves with other things when we should be preparing for our Lord's return. I believe our, G- our bridegroom, Jesus' return, has been delayed, but will not be delayed any further. It's like he's given us this last chance. He's saying, I have extended mercy out to you, but there's a cutoff time, and that cutoff time is short. It will not be much longer. So nothing, there's nothing that should take precedence over us preparing for our Lord's return. Nothing. There's nothing. So like the ten virgins who went out to meet the bridegroom, five were ready, five were not. 
So let's take a look at that for a moment. So again, the complete Jewish Bible I'm looking at, it's Matthew 25, 1 through 13. The kingdom of heaven at that time will be like 10 bridesmaids. In the complete Jewish Bible, they say bridesmaids, not virgins, who took their lamps, went out to meet the groom. Five were foolish, five were sensible. The foolish ones took lamps with them, but no oil. Whereas the others took flask of oil with their lamps. Now the bridegroom was delayed. It says he was late. So they all went to sleep. Now, key note, they all went to sleep. It wasn't the foolish ones who went to sleep. It was all of them. So the church is asleep. We need to wake up. (laughs) It was the middle of the night when the cry went out. The bridegroom is here. Go out to meet him. The girls all wake up and prepared their lamps. Again, it doesn't say just the, the wise ones wake up and prepare their lamps. It says they all wake up and prepare their lamps for lighting. <clears throat> In Psalm 119, 105, it says, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. It says... All have access to God's word, but the foolish did not read it. We cannot carry our Bibles around and think that we know God by carrying a Bible. We need to read this. This is where we get our oil from, spending time with him, spending time with him in his word. Everybody has access to this, but the foolish ones did not read this Bible So the foolish one says to the sensible ones, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both you and us. Go to the oil dealers and buy some for yourselves. But as they were going off to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who are ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later, the other bridemaids came and said, sir, sir, They cried, let us in. But he answered, indeed, I tell you, I do not know you. If you went over to somebody's house and sat down at their table with them, and they sat on their phone the entire time and paid no attention to you, you know, would you say that you know them? Probably not. How would you get to know them if they're not talking to you? How do you get to know them if they are not spending any time with you? They, you wouldn't know them. <clears throat> Matthew 7.23 says, Many will say in those days, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name or perform wonders? And he will say, Depart from me, for I, you who practice lawlessness, for I never knew you. It says they perform miracles, signs and wonders. These people are performing signs and wonders, yet they don't know their God. Their God doesn't know them. They have not spent time. God is a gift giver, and he gives without repentance. But you still need to sit and spend time with him. You need to cultivate that time in the secret place. So, yes. Again, there's only one marked difference between the wise and the foolish. 
the wise had oil, the foolish did not. There is no other difference. The wise had oil, they spent time with their Lord. As the bride of Christ, we can absolutely not afford to be foolish and without oil. We must be wise. So oil speaks to the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 23, 5 says, You prepare a table for me even as my enemies watch. You anoint my head with oil from an overflowing cup. Revelation 3.20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. He's at your door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the, the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me and we've, that's where they have fellowship. You open the door, you eat with somebody, you spend time with somebody, you get to know somebody. You know, if you see somebody in a movie, you go, oh, yeah, I know who Angelina Jolie is or Brad Pitt, but do you know them? If they seen you on the street, would they say, hi, I know you? No, they wouldn't. So the Lord is inviting us to his banqueting table where we meet with him in intimate communion. It's only in communion with him where we will get our oil. Your job is to show up, spend time with him, read your word, worship in spirit and in truth. The Lord desires intimacy with you. He longs for you. You are his bride. So now let's take a deeper look. In the time of Jesus, according to the traditional Jewish wedding system, there were five customs. The arrangement of marriage, the betrothal ceremony, the preparation period between betrothal and wedding, wedding ceremony, and then the wedding feast. According to the wedding tradition, it was the father who chose a bride for his son. The son's desires were taken into consideration, but the father has final say. The fathers of both bride and groom would come to an arrangement and then write up a ketubah, which is a marriage contract that laid out the terms of marriage, the bride price, the responsibilities of both parties, and the dowry. This is a clear picture of God choosing us as his bride for his son. He chose us. We did not choose him. It's important to know this. In John 6, it says, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. John 15, 16 says, You didn't choose me, I chose you. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Jesus paid the ultimate bride price for you. His very life, his blood was shed to purchase you. He's entered into that marriage covenant with you. Matthew 26, 28 says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Don't you realize your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. The betrothal ceremony was the second custom. To prepare for this ceremony, the bride and groom would take part separately in a ritual immersion in water, which symbolized spiritual cleansing. Then they would have vows, promising to be married, exchanging of rings or something else of value, and then sealed the agreement by sharing a cup of wine. 
<clears throat> the couple was then considered legally married, although they were each to remain under their father's roofs and not have any sexual relations. For them to separate now for any reason would require a legal divorce. So we all took part of this spiritual cleansing when we were baptized with water. We exchanged our old lives for the new. We were taking part in a betrothal ceremony. It was customary for them to share that cup of wine to seal the betrothal. And we see Jesus offering his disciples a cup of wine at the Last Supper. And this one is out of the Passion Translation that I'm reading. And I'm sorry, I forgot to write the scripture. Anyway, it says, Then, taking the cup of wine and giving praises to the Father, he entered into covenant with them, saying, This is my blood. Each of you must drink in fulfillment of the covenant, for this is the blood that seals the new covenant. It will be poured out for many for the complete forgiveness of sins. Each time we take communion, we're reiterating this covenant with our bridegroom. The betrothal ceremony would end with a feast to celebrate the occasion, and then each party would return to their homes for the preparation period. In the preparation period, the groom would be busy preparing a place for him and his bride to live. This was done by adding a chamber onto his father's house. This chamber was called a hupa, a honeymoon bed. This had to be built to his father's specifications. The groom's family would also be preparing for the marriage supper as it was to be held at the father's house. The son also would be choosing his attendants, having his marriage garments made. And when the time was right, the father would send the son to receive his bride. While the groom was preparing, the bride was also getting ready. It was customary to have a waiting period of up to a year, sometimes longer. So it was crucial she be prepared for his return as no one knew the day or the hour except the bridegroom's father. She was observed for her purity to assure that she was a virgin. She examined everything in her life and made necessary changes in order to be ready for holy covenant of marriage. She made her own wedding garments, chose her attendants, and prepared for a new life. Her gown would be made of linen, white, and as, as a sign of purity. Linen symbolized righteousness. Revelation 19.8 speaks of bridal garments. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. <clears throat> like a wise virgin, she kept a light burning in her window and had extra oil on hand. If the bridegroom would return for her and find her unprepared, the wedding would be called off and they would divorce. Jesus tells us in John 14, 2-3, and this is a complete Jewish Bible again, In my Father's house are many places to live. If there weren't, I would have told you, because I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Since I am going and preparing a place for you, I will return to take you with me, so that where I am, you may also be. He's preparing a place for us right now. Our job is to be in preparation. We are in that preparation period awaiting his return. And nobody knows the day or the hour except that our Father in heaven. Yes. We need to examine our own lives 
and change whatever is necessary in order to be ready for this return. Our hearts should be crying out, Lord, make us holy as you are holy. Let's be sure we always have our oil full so that he doesn't return and find us unprepared. The wedding ceremony was the fourth custom. It's now been a year or more, and the bride is waiting expectantly for her bridegroom. Her oil lamps would always be burning. The ceremony day was a surprise for both parties, as no one knows the day or hour except the father. The father would inform the son it was time to receive his bride. He would dress in his wedding garments, call for his best man and attendants. This, and slightly ahead of the groom, an attendant, his best man would go and blow a shofar, a trumpet. This was called the last trump. The best man would then shout, behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. The bride and her attendants would come out, and the groomsmen would then lead the wedding party back to the groom's home under the wedding canopy. The vows were made during the betrothal were completed in the marriage ceremony. The bride was veiled during the ceremony. Crowns were placed on their head, and they were called king and queen during the ceremony in reference to the Feast of Trumpets. Now, I just wanted to read to you a little bit about the Feast of Trumpets. And this book, I absolutely adore this book. It's called Understanding Jesus, Cultural Insights into the Words and Deeds of Christ by Joe Amaral. I highly recommend it if you're interested at all. <laughs> the Feast of Trumpets. In John 7, we read that Jesus attends the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles in Jerusalem. This celebration was preceded by the Feast of Trumpets or the Jewish New Year and then the Day of Atonement, which is covered in a later section. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present an offering made by fire to the Lord. The first day of the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. It's a day for you to sound the trumpets. Numbers 29.1. This feast takes place on the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, known as Tishri, and it was on this day God told Israel to celebrate this feast. The Feast of Trumpets is one feast in which the simplest commands were given in respect to its requirements. He said, blow trumpets. Such a simple command from the Lord, but yet this feast holds the greatest joy a believer in Christ can hope for. This feast is a pro prophetic picture of the rapture of the bride of Christ. Trumpets have a very significant role in scripture. Let's look at a couple verses in scripture that deal with the blowing of trumpets. The first one is Matthew 24, 31. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Another is Joel 2.1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, and it is close at hand. Although it is called the Feast of Trumpets in Scripture, most people today know it by its modern name, Rosh Hashanah. This phrase literally means head of the year. 
Just like Passover begins the Jewish religious year, trumpets begins the Jewish civil year. So in the Jewish community, Rosh Hashanah is celebrated as the new year. There are different reasons for this. Rabbanic tradition teaches that the world was created on Tishri 1, and some even teach this was the very day on which man was created. During Bible times, this feast was celebrated for only one day. However, as time went on, it was extended by the addition of a second day. The new year is determined by the sighting of the new moon by two witnesses. To minimize the chance of an error in the sighting of the new moon, and therefore celebrating the feast on the wrong date, the Jews added one day just to be safe. The Feast of Trumpets is the only feast for which no one really knows the day or hour when it will begin. They always know the season of trumpets, but they cannot pinpoint the day. It is possible this was the event Jesus referred to in his commands about the end times in Matthew 24:36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. It's interesting to note it is necessary for two witnesses to come before the Feast of Trumpets can be begin. In the book of Revelation, John mentions two witnesses will be sent by God in the last days. It's possible that these are the two witnesses who must come before the rapture can take place. Consider the text, and we will consider the author and its culture. Revelation 11, 3-4 states, and I will give my power to my two witnesses, and they will excuse me, prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. There are two olive trees and two lamp stands that stand before the Lord of the earth. You have to remember that John was a Jewish male living with first century Israel. The fact he received the revelation while on the island of Patmos has little or no bearing upon his theology. The prime influence upon his thinking and writing would be the Judaism of his day, which included many writings with powerful apocalyptic visions as well as the understanding of feasts of the Lord. (coughs) The idea of two witnesses coming before the Feast of Trumpets can begin is very much a first century Jewish idea. So, there's seven feasts listed in the Bible. Four are the spring feasts and three are fall. The spring feasts were fulfilled at Christ's first coming coming on the exact day of those feasts. The fall speaks of his second coming. The Feast of Trumpets falls, like we said, on the first day of the Jewish calendar. It's the first fall feast, and it refers to the wedding of the Messiah to his bride, It's also known as the coronation of the Messiah. The Feast of Trumpets relates to the the last trumpet that shall sound when he comes in his glory. It signals the second coming as Jesus' return for his bride. So many believe this marks the beginning of the seven years tribulation for those left behind. 1 Corinthians 15.52 in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. The marriage ceremony was seven days. This could possibly represent the seven years of tribulation on earth where the bride has been raptured and is in the bridal chamber with her groom. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and gather his elect. We don't know that day will come, so we should spend each day getting to know our bridegroom king, falling deeper in love with him 
allowing him to purge us of all unrighteousness so we may be presented before him on that glorious day, a pure and spotless bride. The Song of Songs is an allegory between Jesus and his bride. It's our journey from being spotted and chosen by our king to becoming his bride. In Song of Songs 3-4, the maiden cries out, cries out for her lover, a cry that should echo our own. And this is from the message, virgin, virgin. Restless in bed and sleepless through the night, I longed for my lover. I wanted him desperately. His absence was painful. So our, as we're waiting for him, is our hearts crying out for him? Are we desperate for him or have we filled ourselves with the things of this world and dulled our senses? Is it painful to be away from him? I know for myself, when my husband and I were first started dating, I could not stand to be away from him. My heart would ache every time he walked out my door and I couldn't wait for his return. He was at the forefront of my thoughts always. But this is what the Jesus wants for us to feel about him. He wants to be at the forefront of your thoughts. He wants to be at the center of your, of, of your attention. You are his chosen. You are his betrothed bride. He's already paid the price for you. He should be at the center of our thoughts. So the fifth and final custom was the wedding feast. This was the highlight of the ceremony and consisted of seven full days of food, music, dancing, and celebrating. The primary purpose was to honor the groom. Every guest would write poems or sing songs to him. And I loved what Josephine said about worship. We need to be worshiping our bridegroom. We need to be in our hearts, worshiping in spirit and in truth. The groom, he would then display his bride and her beauty to all present, and they in turn would show her respect and admiration. She would be sure to look her best and be wearing the beautiful wedding garments that she had spent this past year preparing. <clears throat> Following the feast, they would then live as husband and wife for the rest of their days. So in Revelation 19, 6 through 9, it refers to the wedding feast of the Lamb. It says, Then I heard what sounded like the roar of a huge crowd like the sound of rushing waters, like the peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, Lord God of heaven's armies has begun his reign. Let us rejoice and be glad. Let us give him the glory. For the time has come for the wedding of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. We need to be preparing ourselves. We need to not be looking at everyone around us and be like, Melanie, you need to help me prepare. Effie, you need to help me prepare. No, the bride makes herself ready. We need to align ourselves with our Holy Spirit and ask him, will you help me purge myself? Help me prepare my heart. Help me be pure and spotless bride for my bridegroom king. 
We cannot look to anybody else to prepare us. This is our responsibility for ourselves. And I cannot stress enough by getting your daily manna. There's too many people, they are feeding off of others' regurgitated manna. You know, the Israelites gathered manna every day in the desert. And it would go bad the next day and they had to gather more. Or they're going to starve. They're not going to gather manna. This is your manna. You are starving without it. You need to read your word. Yes. For the time has come for the wedding of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. Fine linen, bright and clean, been given to her to wear. The angel said to me, write, how blessed are those who have been invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Then he added, these are God's very words. Can you imagine what that day is going to be like? You know, like the song says, I can only imagine what it will be like. So just picture that for a moment. You, the bride of Christ, dressed in the most beautiful garments you could possibly imagine, crowned with righteousness, and all of heaven is celebrating your wedding day. I can't possibly imagine it. I'm sure it will be more glorious than anything we could possibly imagine. So I hope that as we took just a little brief look at the ancient wedding customs and the bride of Christ, that you get a clearer picture of who you are and who Jesus is, your bridegroom king. And know that you are his chosen that you are his betrothed, you are his beloved, and that he is preparing a place for you even as we speak. And we should be getting ready. I hope this would cause you to hunger for more of him and search the scriptures to find him, cultivate an intimate relationship with him. He's inviting you to come deeper as deep calls out to deep, and the wave of your water, roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. I pray that his love will sweep over you tonight, that the deep is calling out to deep. Lord, take us deeper. We want to know you more. Purge us, cleanse us of everything that would hinder our relationship with you. Oh, Holy Spirit, help us in our preparation to become that pure, spotless bride falling so much deeper in love with you, Father. For you are so worthy of all of our praise. <sighs> Cause us to have that, that love from Song of Songs where our heart aches, our heart breaks if we're not in your presence, and that we will just take any moment of the day just to slip away and be in that secret place with you. Get on our face and not come with any expectation except, Father, we come seeking you. 
You are the expectation that we come for. Lay everything else aside. There is nothing more important than him. He knows all of your needs before you can ask or think. And he will meet all of those needs according to his riches and glory, not according to our own. He will meet those needs. He's inviting you into his chambers, his holy of holies. Like Josephine spoke about, those 300 men took to manipulate that veil, but the Lord tore it so you could enter in. And he's inviting you in there. Do we realize what a beautiful privilege that is? Or do we take that for granted? Because we've always had access to that place we have to stop taking our father for granted and coming before him and laying everything at his feet and just saying father we just want you because there's nothing else more important and he just so longs to hear your voice and he says you know what I long for you to hear my voice. Will you just sit with me long enough to hear what I have to say instead of telling me all of your cares and concerns and walking away? What about what I have to say? He longs for that intimate relationship, but it's not just one-sided. We can't just come to him with everything and then walk away and not listen to what he has to say. Like, we must wait for that direction for him. We must wait on him. He just wants to remind you of who you are, his beloved bride, and to remind you that he will return. And we don't know the day or the hour. It could be for tomorrow for all we know. So we must prepare. So I want you just to sit back. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to let everything fade away. I want you just to allow him to come and take you into his chambers tonight as we listen to this song. You have been listening to Cold Lake Community Church Podcast. We hope that you've been blessed by this teaching from Cold Lake Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect.